Amen. You can have a seat. Kids, you can go with Miss Julie. We loved having you here. Thanks for being with us. Yes, I like the enthusiasm with which they leave, and I don't take it personal. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I love you. It's good to be together um, on this Sunday to worship and to stand and to have our arms raised and our hearts abandoned. It's also good to sit and have our arms down and our hearts open to hear from God and his word today. I'm excited about this message as we continue um, in the series we've been in called Unlikely, where we're talking about how God uses unlikely people. But not only that, we're talking about how he uses unlikely people. And then what does it look like to be used? Because sometimes to think about like, yeah, you, I want to be used by God. And then the actual reality of what that means and the sacrifice and the risk required is good for us to consider as God's people in this world. And today we're in kind of part two of a journey in the story of Esther. Uh, we Last week, if you were with us, remember that we journeyed deep into the Persian Empire to the capital city of Susa, where King Xerxes dismissed his disobedient queen in search of a new one. And so a decree went out um, to all the beautiful women from 127 provinces all over the empire, and they were brought to King Xerxes so that he could have his pick. And one of the young girls brought into the king's harem was a young orphaned Jewish girl named Esther. And she caught the eye of the king and she impressed him so much that she ended up winning the contest. And it just so happened that this little no-named girl became the queen of the largest empire in the history of the world. It also just so happened last week that her cousin, Mordecai, who had raised Esther as his own, overheard two guards plotting to assassinate the king. And he told Esther about their plan, and she in turn told the king, and Mordecai essentially got credit for saving the king's life. And if you remember last week, we talked about how Esther is written sort of like a play. And last week, the curtains closed on Act 1, right at this moment, and things really seem to be going well for Esther and Mordecai. She's the queen. He's the hero. The curtains close. The audience applauds. And I hope you enjoyed your intermission because now the plot will thicken as the curtains open for Act 2. Chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So here we're introduced right away in chapter 3 to the ultimate villain of this story, a guy by the name of Haman. And Haman is one of those characters who's so cartoonishly evil that you sort of have to picture him with a long, curly mustache that he enjoys twirling, right? That's Haman. He's given the highest seat of honor by King Xerxes. We aren't told why, but for some reason, the king really likes Haman. And Haman likes his position. Haman likes his power. Haman really likes people honoring him. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, 
he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So now Haman, in his rage, in his anger towards Mordecai, he goes to King Xerxes to get even. And he asks the king to enact mass genocide on all of Mordecai's people, the Jewish people. And his reasoning, if you read, as you read in chapter 3, is pretty much this. It's kind of silly reasoning. It's kind of crazy. When you read it, it's almost meant to sound as ridiculous as it is. His reasoning is, Jews are weird. They're different than us. They have different customs. They don't assimilate to our culture. And so the obvious choice here, the, the, the obvious thing to do here, King, is to kill them all. And you read that, and it's the Bible's way of sort of pointing something out to us, pointing out how, how utterly ridiculous and evil prejudice and racism in our world really are. And so we remember from last week that the king is, doesn't really have a mind of his own. He's very easily swayed. And so he gives Haman permission. He gives him his ring, the symbol of his authority, along with permission to issue a decree across the entire kingdom. And here's what it says. With the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. See, friends, one of the things we have to understand is that woven through the plot of the Scriptures, and certainly of this story, Esther, is this idea that God uses His people in this world to fight against pride and sin and racism and genocide. See, Esther is such a wonderful story because it's about how God's people fight in this world for God's ways, and he doesn't do it using the clergy. You notice that Esther and Mordecai, they're not pastors, they're not priests, they're just two regular God followers. One man, one woman, and actually where they're involved is in the government. These are government Workers, Esther's the queen, Mordecai sort of engaged in the government. And we see that God uses people in culture to impact culture. Brenda Salter McNeil in her work on Esther talks about this. She says, leaders are often just people who are willing to take their Christianity and apply it to the issues of their day. Leaders are often just regular People like all of us who are willing to take their Christianity and apply it to the issues of their day. You see, God doesn't just work in the church. He uses the church in the world. He uses his people in the culture. And I bring this up because sometimes in churches like our church, people don't like it when we talk about the issues of the day and they will say things like, can't we just preach the gospel? Now, I love the gospel, right? We're all about the gospel here. But friends, the gospel is huge. Don't ever use the word just and the gospel in the same statement. Because the gospel is anything but just. I mean, like, it's not just the gospel, it's the gospel and then all the implications of the gospel in our lives and in this world, and that is huge. So certainly we preach the gospel and all of its implications in our world. 
We never just, just preach the gospel. Like, let's just get people to heaven. Isn't that all we're supposed to do here in church? No, our mission is to what? Become like Jesus and make him known. You see, Jesus didn't say, all right, church, now you go and just preach the gospel. You know what Jesus said? He said, now you go and you make disciples. You go and you make followers. You help people follow me. You help people not only trust in me for salvation, but learn to think like me and respond like me and act like me in this world. That's what the gospel will do to the human heart. And Jesus didn't avoid the issues of his day. Friends, he, he was all over the issues of his day. He brought God's heart and God's perspective to those issues, and he challenges his followers to do the same. You see, the gospel is not only that we will be fully in God's presence someday, but that we have been given God's presence today by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we bring that presence into the world. And so Christians, followers of Jesus, should be people who are willing to challenge the status quo and ask, what would Jesus do? What would he think about what is happening in our world right now, in our world? And maybe most importantly, how would he respond? What changes would he call for? What issues would he care about? And what issues would he not? What issues would he say are a big deal for my followers? And what issues would he say are a distraction? See, this is how God's people have always throughout history been called to live. And now, in our story today, it's Mordecai and Esther's turn. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, this issue that or this decree that has been issued, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. You see, inside the capital city of Susa, up on a hill, 120 feet above everything else around, right in the western part of the city, was the king's palace. And the king's palace was no small area. It was no small thing. It was sort of like a city inside of a city. It was sort of like the Washington, D.C. of its day. And the palace was the place of power. The palace was the place of privilege. The power was the place where all the laws and culture sort of flowed out of for the entire empire. And this is why Mordecai goes there. This is why in this moment, he shows up at the king's gate. You see, he's not just mourning. He's not just sad. He's protesting. He's protesting. This is a political act. This is someone going and picketing the White House. Someone going and saying, it's not right. It's not just. It's not okay, right? This is a political moment for, for Mordecai. He wants things to change. He wants action. Verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther sees her cousin, the man who's raised her. She sees his mourning. She sees his protest. She sees the way he's dressed, and she says, hey, can you change your clothes for me? 
Send down some, some nicer clothes for Mordecai to put on. And yet he would not accept them. Friends, sometimes when you stand for God and when you stand for truth and when you stand for justice in this world, it will make people in the palace, people in positions of privilege and power, feel uncomfortable and they will ask you to tone it down, to not be so dramatic, to, to not create waves or rock the boat. And yet in this moment, Mordecai refuses to be silenced. He says, Esther, I know that you are living in the palace these days and you have attendance and room service and the best clothes and the best food. And from your perspective, I'm sure things in this world seem to be going okay. But I'm here to tell you as somebody outside the palace that they're not okay. They're not in a good place. Things are not the way God wants them to be in this world. And so, no, I can't be less dramatic. And I will not be silenced. So, so take these clothes back. Again, Brenda Salter McNeil, speaking at Biola, says, Mordecai becomes a prophetic edge for us who says, when you're living in social times that demand some response, speak up about it, and don't let people shut you up. When you're living in social times that demand a social response, speak up about it, people of God, and don't let people shut you up. And so instead of accepting these clothes, Mordecai sends them back to Esther with a message for her, and the message is this. Esther, our people are going to be annihilated, and so you must go to the king, and you must be the one to change the king's mind. You and go and fight for the justice of God. But Esther didn't want to do it. She, she, she didn't think this was a good idea. She is concerned, and here are her words back to Mordecai, verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. See, Esther remembers that this is a king who's very sensitive to being disrespected. And so for Esther to go to him unsummoned, especially to tell him how to do his job, she doesn't think that's going to go over very well. She doesn't think that's very smart. And she remembers what happened to the queen before her. She remembers what happened to Queen Vashti. Furthermore, at the end of verse 11, Esther adds this, 30 days have passed since I was called to go be with the king. In other words, friends, King Xerxes is not as taken with, with Queen Esther as he once was. He's not as into her as he was at the beginning of their marriage. It seems he has moved on to greener pastures. And so Esther is questioning how much influence she has with the king anymore anyway. But Mordecai won't let her off the hook. She's saying, I don't even know if I can, if I can sway his mind. And Mordecai says, no, no, no. Don't go, you're not off the hook yet, Esther. I'm going to challenge you. And Mordecai challenges Esther to trust God in a way that perhaps she never has before. He reminds her that she is one of the people threatened by this king. She, he reminds her of who she is. And then comes perhaps 
the most famous sentence from this entire book of Scripture. Chapter 4, verse 14. This is Mordecai to Esther. This is his challenge to her. He says, and who knows, Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Esther, you have not been brought to this point in your life to simply be the most desirable, attractive woman in the kingdom. That's not the point of your existence. Your your position and power and privilege and influence that you've been given You must not use it to just simply create more of a comfortable life for yourself. Mordecai says, Esther, you are here right now to stand for God and to work for justice and to play your role in God's plans and purposes in this world. Do not miss your chance. And friends, I believe this is a message not just for Esther. I believe it's recorded in the Bible because it's a message for all Christians at all times. It's a message for you and me here today. Because, believe it or not, you have some position. You have some power. You have been given some privilege and some influence in this world. And the question today for you and for me is the same question that Esther faced Where is God asking you to leverage what you've been given for his plans and purposes in our day? Where is God asking you to leverage what you have been given by him for his plans and purposes in our day? Because who knows, but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. But who knows that you have come to your neighborhood or your school or your family or your marriage or your job or your church or your friend group for such a time as this. And so the question for you and me, like like for Esther, is will you risk? Will you face the possible sacrifice? Will you work for God? Or or will you use what you've been given to simply create more comfort for yourself? Because standing for God often costs something, and it always involves some risk. Verse 15, Esther understands this. She says, it says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. Now, last week I told you that the entire book of Esther, the entire book, God is not even mentioned, not even one time. That's true. But the closest thing we have to a mention of the Lord is right here in verse 16. Esther calling for a fast. And I want to talk for a minute about why she does this and what a fast is, um, why you would fast. A fast in the Bible is simply depriving yourself of something or giving something up, something that you depend on, so that you can intentionally choose to be more dependent on God. It's, It's shifting your dependence from something to God for a season. And traditionally, a fast is about food. We, de- we depend on food for strength, for nourishment, for pleasure. And so when we give up food, we're making this statement, God, you're my strength, you're my nourishment, you're my pleasure. I'm going to look to you for those things, not in the food that I have. 
But in our world, there are also some other things that we can choose to fast or to give up in order to be more connected to God and more dependent on Him. Maybe in your life, you're pretty dependent on television, Netflix, Disney+. Maybe that's where you go for comfort and pleasure every day. If that's true, you might decide to fast from watching your shows for a season in order to intentionally rely on the Lord and connect with Him more often in prayer. Or maybe you spend an inordinate amount of time on social media, and if you're honest, too much of your identity is wrapped up in your TikTok account or Instagram account. I know some people in this room that might apply to. Um, And if that's the case for you, maybe you might fast social media for a season in order to root more of your identity in the Lord, and instead of going on to Instagram, you go to Scripture. Or maybe it's something specific in your life. Alcohol. You've just been enjoying too many glasses of your favorite wine lately, or your favorite coffee, Pastor Nick. Or perhaps you're an elder at Cedar Mill Bible Church whose name I won't mention, but it rhymes with Pevin Kalau, and every single day you would enjoy an entire pint of McConnell's ice cream. Oh, can you believe it? Here's the point, Pevin Kalau. If you too often look to a substance of any kind for pleasure and comfort in this world, then maybe for a season, just for a season, one of the ways you can grow in your relationship with God is to intentionally give up your earthly pleasure in order to find pleasure and comfort in spending time with your dad in heaven. And I bring this up because in a couple of weeks, as Pastor Ashley said, we're going to be entering into the church season called Lent. And Lent is a time of spiritual preparation as we relate with Jesus, as he moves towards the cross, as we understand his feelings, as he walks towards the crucifixion. It's also a time where we relate to his 40 days of fasting in the desert. And so... The start of Lent this year is March 2nd, Ash Wednesday. Right up here on campus, we're going to have a prayer and worship night. And then as a community, as an entire church family, together we are going to to do a fast. We're asking you to join us in this. We're going to be giving something up. Everyone can choose their own thing. I want you to discern that in prayer and with the Lord. But it's the idea of giving something up in order to make more time and put more focus on relying on on Jesus instead of that thing in this world that you're going to step away from for this season. So put the prayer and worship night on your calendar and be thinking and praying, Lord, what would you have me fast in this season of my life that I could be more dependent on you? Okay, back to Esther. She calls for a fast because she knows that she, in this moment, needs to rely fully on the Lord. She knows that there's no way her own beauty or winsomeness or strength are going to get her through this mission. She's saying, pray and fast because we must trust God for this moment in time. And then she says this in verse 16. I love these words. This is Esther. When this is done, she says, when the fasting is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow God's will. And if I perish, I perish. Friends, this is a great definition of what it means to walk the narrow road of following Jesus. To say, no matter what, Lord. 
no matter what the risk, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means for my life, I will follow you. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on the book of Esther, points out that there are 14 times in this book when Esther is not just called Esther, but she's called Queen Esther. And 13 of those times happen after she says, if I perish, I perish. And here's the message. In this moment, Esther determines not just to be the wife Xerxes expects, but the queen God created her to be. See, she becomes Queen Esther, Queen Esther in God's eyes when she decides that she will follow him no matter what. Now she's not just Esther, now she's Queen Esther. I've told you this before, but a number of years ago, the Mattel Corporation had a a production mess up, and the little voice boxes that were intended for Barbies and G.I. Joes got switched. This is a true story. And so uh, no one realized it, and they caught it a little late, and so when you pull the little string on the back of Barbie, um, the wrong thing would come out, and the same for G.I. Joe. And so there were hundreds of kids all over the nation who were real shocked when G.I. Joe would say, let's shop till we drop. And then, uh, and then Barbie would say, hit the ground, soldier, now, move, move, move. People, and I bring that up because I think this is one of those moments here. Xer- Xerxes, he thinks he's got Barbie. He's got G.I. Jane, Right? And behind the scenes, God is shattering some of our stereotypes. Stereotypes about who can be used in powerful ways. Stereotypes about what it means to be a beautiful woman in this world and what the world will tell you and what God says about you. What it means to be a minority population and how God wants you. See, God is shattering so many stereotypes. He's reversing the way we are tempted to think. Let's let him do it. Esther's willing to do it, so she puts on her royal robes, and she says, I'm not just a beauty queen anymore. I am a daughter of the real king. And she goes before her earthly king. This time, she doesn't have 12 months of beauty treatments. She just has three days of fasting. I don't know how you look after three days of fasting. I don't always look so good. But she goes anyway, and she walks into the inner court of the palace, and she waits for the king, and she waits for his response, and she knows this is the moment. This is the moment of life or death. Chapter 5, verse 2. When Xerxes saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Now, real quick here, we need to understand how king talk works. Xerxes is not literally offering Esther half of the kingdom. It's not a literal, like a literal offer. This is more along the lines of, I'm in a real good mood tonight, and I'm very happy to see you. And so if we decide to get takeout, you can pick the restaurant, right? That's, that's what's being said here. The point is, the point that's being made is, Esther realizes she still has the king's ear. That influence that she thought she might have lost, she still has it. God has given her favor. And so she throws a couple of banquets. And over time, she tells the king her story, that she and her people will be destroyed. And the king says, what? You're going to be destroyed, Queen Esther, you and all your people? Who would do that? 
Chapter 7, verse 6, Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. So Haman, the one who planned the execution of the Jews, is now executed himself. And because he's executed, the king needs a new chief of staff. And it just so happens that one sleepless night, he's reminded of how Mordecai saved his life. And so Mordecai, who just one chapter before was in sackcloth and ashes, is now adorned in royal robes. You see how God can so often flip the script in ways we'd never expect. And friends, I know that I summarized the end of this story very quickly. Some of you are looking ahead and you're going like, you summarized like six chapters there, Pastor Dave. And I know I did that, and I did it on purpose, and I did it for a reason. It's because I want you to see, more than the details of this story, the meta-narratives of this story, the big picture points that God is offering to you and me, and here's one of them. We look for God in the majestic, but he's often in the minuscule. We, as his people, are tempted to look for him in the majestic, but he's often just in the minuscule. One thing you'll notice as you read the book of Esther, there are no big miracles in this story. There's no big dramatic like blockbuster movement, CGI moments, none of those. There's a lot of little coincidences. There's a lot of little, it just so happens moments, but there's nothing grandiose. And this is different than other stories in the Bible. In so many other scripture passages, God's people are in peril. They're in trouble. They're in danger. They need to be saved or rescued. And then God shows up and he delivers them through some amazing miracle. Bushes burn. Plagues are pronounced. Seas are parted. Giants are slain. Lions are shockingly sedate. Skeleton armies rise. City walls crumble. 300 defeat 135,000. And so sometimes, yeah, whoa, that's how it sort of seems in the scriptures. And so we get this message sometimes like, this is what it means for God to show up. This is how he works in our world. He does the magnificent and the majestic and the miraculous. But Esther sits here nestled right in the middle of the Old Testament as a way of saying, not always. It's not always how he works. Sometimes. Oftentimes, I would add, God is at work in the everyday, ordinary events of life. And I say that to you this morning because maybe you're here and you've been waiting for that big miracle and you've been praying, God, for that big Red Sea parting miracle moment and God doesn't seem to be showing up and you're tempted to think, where are you, Lord? Why are you not here? Why are you not with me? Why are you not working? God, why aren't you doing that big miracle in my marriage that I've been praying for? Why aren't, you, why aren't you powerfully changing the diagnosis that I've been given? Why, God, aren't you dramatically directing my career or my dating life or my financial reality or my relationship struggles? And the answer from the book of Esther for you and me seems to be, maybe he is. Maybe he is showing up. Maybe he is right there. But maybe it's just in the little things. Maybe it's in that drug that seems to, to barely be working. Or in that nurse that you had the chance to meet. Or in the friendship you formed at the office. Or maybe it's in the fact that 
that he agreed finally to get help for the marriage and go to counseling. Or maybe it's in that new friend you made at lunch. Or maybe it's in the fact that you were experiencing contentment for the first time at being single. Maybe that's the miracle. It's just a small one. Or maybe you're learning to trust God and even be generous with less. So you've been praying for that financial, like financial like windfall for God to do this amazing thing. And maybe he's saying, I'm doing a different thing. And it's a small thing, but it's a good thing. See, God, he is right there. It's just in a way that you hadn't expected, a way that you hadn't prayed for. It's just in a small way. And maybe his ways are small, but his plans are big. And maybe his big plan is to use you as average and ordinary as you may feel that you are. But maybe God's big plan is for little old you to leverage all the power and position and influence that you've been given for his glory and his justice and his kingdom in the world. Because that, my friends, is the unlikely story of Esther. A little, ordinary orphaned young Jewish girl who trusted God and was used for big, big things. Why? Because God's faithfulness is great. Even when we don't see him, even when that huge miracle doesn't come, great is his faithfulness. Do you believe that today? Great is his faithfulness in your life, in your struggle in your issues, in your challenges, great is his faithfulness. Believe it today. Preach it to yourself. I need to hear it so many times. I need to hear it in my life these days. Even though, God, you haven't done exactly what I wanted, you're still at work to do what you want. And great is your faithfulness. I pray that that message resonates in your heart today and it gives you courage to walk through whatever you're walking through, and be who God's calling you to be. Let's pray. Father, please, Lord, let this be more than just words on a Sunday morning. May the truth and the truths of this story infiltrate our minds and hearts. May they change us. May the story of Esther, Lord, change the way we see this world, our world. Will you shift our hearts and our posture towards things that we're facing? Would you give us eyes to see the way you see? Would you give us courage to bring our faith in you and the Holy Spirit within us right into the issues of this day and help us, Lord, to engage the ways that you would engage? to say the things that you would say, to care about the things that you would care about. I pray that you would do that in us. Continue to do that in us, Lord. And God, when, when we're not seeing the big miracles and we're wondering if you're there and if you care, would you remind us to look for the little things and would you remind us that your faithfulness is great? We need that reminder, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you and we rely on you. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.